0: Welcome to The Crux of the Matter, Episode 61, Mother Teresa and Liberation Theology. My name is
1: Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm doing just fine, actually, considering that it's a busy fall semester and we're well underway. Oh, man. I am so getting slammed by the
0: everything on earth starts in the first three weeks of September. So Yeah. Yeah, nation started yesterday Mm. and I got adult instruction starting in a week and we have our circuit has their fall retreat in a few days. So, yeah, I am with
1: you. Are you in charge of that retreat?
0: Um, I am the program coordinator for our we have two circuits that meet together and um, and I'm the I'm in charge of the of developing the program and what happens at Winkles. So kind of, yes, I guess that's the answer.
1: Yeah, Good. Got yeah. uh, some, something else to be in charge
0: yes. of. It's an opportunity for me to develop my delegating skills. So yeah, uh, yeah, that's, that's good. That's a good thing. So, so what are you teaching this fall?
1: Well, this is um, fall semester and I'm teaching uh, several sections of intro to theology. You know, I forget the exact title of the class. It's Foundations of Christian Thought, I believe. and But it's basically Introduction to Christianity. And, um, you know, we go through a systematic theology book and but we but we throw in some other pertinent readings and okay. one one of those things that we do is mere christianity by cs lewis sure and and it's a great book for these kids you know some a few of them have read it you know cuz you do right. get you do get those kids who come from a christian background who've kind of read you know know actually know their faith and have read things and and so a few of them have actually read it i find and then and but there are a number of others who for whom this is new stuff, and some of them really get into it. I was just grading quizzes this morning and was actually delighted by how well one of my classes was doing on the quiz um, because they were they were answering questions, which tells me that at least in that class, those kids they were, you know that they probably read it or at least knew it well enough to do well on the quiz. Well, that's a good thing
0: because uh, yeah, just just getting to the point of of kind of reading things and i know that sounds stupid but uh, we kind of don't really read <laughs> very often anymore not nearly as often as we uh, as we once did so that's uh that's really cool
1: i like yeah that. i mean we like i say we make them read it and uh, you know they they have to read some other we have this other thing as a reader of theology which has excerpts of, prime, you know, significant primary sources, Augustine, Luther, okay. Aquinas, things like that. And so, they, you know, they get their toe dipped into some of that stuff, but to actually sit down and, and read chapter after chapter of a, a work by C.S. Lewis, um, especially this particular one, and we do it at the beginning of the semester because he talks about reasons for believing there is a God and, right. you know, the moral, the moral argument for the existence of God uh, and so anyway, it's kind, of, it's kind of fun at this point in time, and the semester starts to drag, or at least I start to drag probably uh, two-thirds into it, and I have to work on improving that. But right, right now, it's, it's pretty good. Well, the nice thing about teaching
0: something multiple times, of course, is that you don't have to start from scratch. You can actually improve what works?
1: And I feel a big, I feel that, you know, very strongly right now. Um, this is only my second fall teaching as a professor, you know, for teaching professionally like this and this at this level. And of course I'd read Christian, mere Christianity in my youth and I had looked at it over the years, but Uh, So I was generally familiar with it. But when I taught it last fall, I'd never really taught it before. Right, And uh, so, yeah, you're right. You know, now I'm I'm uh, you know, it's much more familiar. I I know what what how to how to explain it better than I did last fall. So I just, you know, I'm kind of hoping that the first year newness is worn off a little bit. And, um, you know, anyway, it's like anything else. You do it a few times, you get better.
0: So happy sophomore year.
1: Yes, it is my sophomore year. (laughs) So instead of just being a fool, now you can be a wise fool. I'm a wise fool. Yeah, that's
0: good. Well, I, you know, after 20 years, you'd think I'd have confirmation figured out, but I always, every single fall, I feel like I'm starting from scratch. I know exactly what you're talking about. And my start from scratch this year is, uh, and I know we've talked about it here before, I have uh, basically three classes that we meet in and it covers third through eighth grade, basically. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, you can take a class multiple times. Uh, So we have a Bible catechesis class, which is more or less third and fourth grade. So we kind of go through the major stories of the Bible. That takes about two years. And then we have a uh, first communion catechesis, which most often ends up in fifth or sixth grade, sometimes a little older, sometimes a little younger. Um, And that one is kind of first pass through the small catechism. And then we have confirmation catechesis, which is generally seventh, eighth grade. And Mm -hmm. that one is a more in-depth look and review of what we did in First Communion catechesis. So this year, the new piece is for that First Communion catechesis, I am requiring at least one parent to sit in on the entire class. So not just once, but for the Mm -hmm. whole year. Mm -hmm. So we had our first class last night. And um and it was I mean, obviously, that changes the demat- the dynamics in a class fairly dramatically when your uh-huh. parent is sitting right next to you. Uh-huh. um, And that's going to take me a while to kind of wrap my brain around how to work that in a way so that the parents aren't just essentially disciplinarians to make sure that their kids are behaving, but are
1: participating in the teaching. Oh, yeah. I
0: think, I, I think that's going to be the trick.
1: But a well, good trick- it, it, and they're, and they're part and they're learners as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so it gives you an opportunity to make sure that they're boned up on this material as well. I, right. I you know, I, I, did it both ways and, you know, I'll be anxious to kind of hear how you feel at the yeah. end of the year. But. So I'll talk about it after, after a few weeks, but,
0: um, but that was our first one for, uh, for last night and, and that, and first shot was good. So, so Go that's, uh, that's okay. okay. Um, then this morning in my uh, men's class, we did uh, Genesis 38, which is Judah and Tamar. Mm-hmm. So we got to talk about Onanism and all sorts of uh, all sorts of fun stuff. So that was a little bit crazy. Um, the, the insight that fascinated me, which I don't actually think is some sort of brilliant insight, Scott, but it, it just kind of struck me is that uh, Tamar dresses up as a cult prostitute, as a mm-hmm. temple prostitute. And so once again, you have this intimate relationship placed between worship, idolatry, and sex and marriage. Mm-hmm. So you get this kind of, this these things put together. Obviously, they're put together by, by Paul, um, mm-hmm. Ephesians right. 5, but also in 1 Corinthians. You know, you are the temple mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit. So it just fascinates me how closely tied the body and worship and idolatry are. Mm-hmm. And, and when those things are kind of taken out of order, now, in the case of Tamar, she dresses up as a as a temple prostitute in order to encourage, let's say, Judah to do his duty toward her now dead husband, Ur. So, it, it, I mean, and that's a whole issue, but it is just a fascinating story and kind of trying to get how those pieces fit together and where does the gospel fit and all of that. So all I right had a
1: good time. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating stuff. And I think that is a pretty good insight. I mean, the body, the, you know, the, the, the role of the body in, in the life of the Christian, the, you know, I mean, we, we become sort of semi-gnostic or quasi-gnostic and we, we tend to think of ourselves as just minds that happen to have a, this, Biological vehicle, right? Um, and uh, yeah, but but the scriptures, is it, the old and the New Testament, don't speak of it that way.
0: No, they don't. Uh, no, and and so there is just this link, this huge cord that ties the body to worship, mm-hmm. and and that cord, I think that we either ignore or actively reject. Yeah, by and large. Yeah. So, right. Right. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I got lots of stuff that I'm uh, teaching teaching that's new right now, and that's probably enough for, uh, enough for this week. but But as you and I kind of uh, tried to get our act together on what we were going to talk about, the topic that we thought would be worth a few minutes of conversation at least uh, was the topic of Mother Teresa for, or uh, for my uh, Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, Saint Teresa of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Um, why is mother Teresa in the news right now?
1: Well, if, 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 our listeners are hiding under a rock or, or, or don't read the news or don't care about religious news, right. um, she, she's been declared a saint of the Catholic church. A saint. Uh, yeah. Mother Teresa, um, of Calcutta who, you know, is known for her charitable works, with the poor and starting a, a an order of nuns that works with um, helping the very poor in cities around the world um, has been elevated to the rank of saint. And it's probably pretty quick. I, I don't I, I'm no expert on this process, but it seems like this is usually something that happens, uh, you know, over a longer, longer period of time. She's only been dead for I mean, she died in what 1998 or something. Yeah, Ninety seven. So yeah. Less than
0: 20 years.
1: Right, right. So, you know, while certainly others have been elevated as quickly and, you know, notably the Pope John Paul II, right, um, most recently. But um, anyway, so so that's kind of big news if you're a Roman Catholic or if you care about this stuff.
0: Right. Well, and and a figure like Mother Teresa is uh, I I mean, it just fascinates me on how a, a, a figure like her is going to be handled in the media. Because mm-hmm. you have this woman who is a religious, she's a nun, mm-hmm. she is uh deeply and profoundly committed to the poor and the marginalized in our society, caring for the poorest of the poor in uh, in Calcutta, but she's also deeply and profoundly pro-life oh yeah, and yeah. and so she is just this mixture of things that our culture doesn't want to do and doesn't want to mix together you know pro-life should be that's the right-wing weirdos and taking care of the poor is the Mm -hmm. left-wing weirdos and being a saint is just what does that even mean so she is this combination that to a world that tries to pretend to be utterly secular she just makes no sense it's just bizarre and and I love that i'm I'm not mm-hmm. gonna lie I absolutely love that they have no clue on what to do with her uh, even things like all right we're gonna try to find dirt on mother Teresa
1: oh yeah yeah there
0: are critics sure right? sure um it, it, in in my reading and i I will in no remote sense make any claim to be an expert on this stuff that is for sure but it, it seems like most of the criticisms center around the fact that that she uh, seemed to like being in the limelight a little bit. You know, she, you know, she was shaking hands and being seen with public figures quite often. Although I think you could make the counter argument that that had to do with uh, advocating on behalf of the poor and the helpless Uh, and that, uh, and that many of the, the monasteries or hospitals and, and uh, other places that she helped to establish did not have the best, did not have the best care. I mean, they were not the, the top quality of care that you would find in the world. In fact, in many ways, uh, in many ways, they were lower on the standard on the scale than you would find in other places. So I guess there's some criticism, but it's, it's just still feels like really you're gonna, you're, you're bashing mother Teresa.
1: Well, I, I think one of her biggest critics was the the atheist um, Christopher Hitchens, right? who who right. wrote about her and you know, there's some accusations that she may have misused um, uh, donations and that she wasn't really trying to lift up the poor and, right. and um, so on and so forth that, you know, being poor is, go- is godly. And therefore, you know, she really wants to kind of keep people in poverty. So it wasn't right. using funds in a proper way. Right. Some, 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 something like that. And, you know, you have to consider the source. Of course she's human. And of course she is, um, liable to, uh, have done things wrong. I mean, I, I, I don't know the inside story. I don't think any of us do. And I certainly don't think Christopher Hitchens is a, is a good source for evaluating the sanctity of someone like Teresa of Calcutta.
0: Right. No, I, uh, I certainly, uh, I certainly agree. And so, so there's been a lot of, a lot of conversation. One of the, one of the conversations that I have enjoyed the most that I've run across so far was, uh, first things has a new podcast that they're, I don't know if it's new or if it's renewed. seems like they've had seven or eight episodes in the last couple, three months. Uh, But they did an episode on Mother Teresa and it had a great title. I'll try to look for it and get it in the show notes. But uh, it was something like Mother Teresa, an ineffectual worker for the poor or something like that. Uh, But basically they were arguing that the figure of Mother Teresa and the work that she did, she never claimed that this was the most. Financially efficient—that mm-hmm. was not what this is about. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was really an interesting, uh, an interesting little uh, uh, podcast on that. I thought worth hearing.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt for that because I, I have listened to their podcasts in the past and have really enjoyed them. Um, right. But they don't seem to come out with the, you know with consistency or regularity, so right. I'll have to. I'll have to dig for that. Yeah,
0: check in your podcast queue, find out if you're still subscribed okay. or something like that. Right. They did right. another one a few weeks back on uh, the musical Hamilton. Mm-hmm. So this is <laughs> okay. a super popular musical on on whether Hamilton is actually good for America. You know, this is this movie where uh, obviously most of the founding fathers were, uh, you know, white Anglo's of some some stripe or another. And and in the musical, they are mostly played by people of color or of other nationalities, and and the whole thing is written in a uh, rap slash hip hop style. So it's not your typical picture of the 18th century, but that's a whole other topic, and maybe we can go down that rabbit trail another time. It was a really yeah, good. Yeah. It was a really good episode, though. I know. Yeah, I
1: I've heard of Hamilton, and and but I haven't seen it. I mean, yeah. I don't. Uh, don't know much have much of an opinion on it i think you'd only see
0: it in new york at this point i don't yeah, think it's I, been taken on the road yet i'm not sure
1: yeah i think you're probably
0: right yeah now so as a lutheran what is a lutheran to do with the roman catholic church declaring mother teresa a saint what uh, i mean how, how are we supposed to deal with that? And how am I, as a pastor, to approach a question like this with my parishioners? I think that is a really worthwhile question
1: to ask. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, it it always comes up, at least whenever I was in the parish, it would always, you know, I would bring it up if it didn't come up whenever something big happened in the Catholic Church, like there was a new pope elected or something. And, um, you know, this is this is as newsworthy as it gets. And um, I use it as a teaching opportunity to talk about what it means to be a saint Um, according to, you know, the, the, I would start with how the scripture uses the term and, and then how that is different from how it's being used in this, in this example, you know, that we would say that any person who has been, uh, who is in Christ, the person who's baptized and is, uh, living the life of faith in Christ is, is, is truly a saint. Um, but it's purely a gift, and, it, and it's you know the righteousness of Christ being attributed to the sinner, and all those sorts of things. I would I would teach. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to teach justification. Right, right. So, so
0: kind of number one is our definition of saint is slightly different than you will find in Rome. Um, I, I actually think that Rome may have more than one definition, and that they kind of exist simultaneously because. Saint Paul uses the term "Saint" really as a synonym for Christian. You know, to mm-hmm. the saints residing in Ephesus, sort of, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, and so, it's not meant as a special status or a special class of Christian. I mean, there, I don't think that there's any real debate about how that is how that is used in the Pauline corpus. I don't remember the term being used elsewhere. In the New Testament, may I mean it's probably in Revelation,
1: but uh, yeah, prob- probably is. Yeah, I I I'm not sure. I yeah. haven't I haven't checked.
0: Yeah, so so we've got so we've got this definition of saint where, and I would say in general, the Lutheran use of the term would be that a saint is a Christian. This is someone yeah. who has made been made holy and righteous by the blood of the Lamb. You know, I think uh-huh. in the Revelation 7, you know, who are these? These are they who, etc. cetera. Uh, and so that's kind of number one is that when we use the term saint, we generally think of it in a different category. Whereas with Rome, it is a technical term and someone is, is declared a saint. It's called being canonized, being declared a saint – uh, by the church itself and there's a very specific process of of nomination and there's actually an entire group at the at the Vatican that that has to go through this investigation process i'm pretty sure that a part of it is that the person has to have two uh two have actually performed two miracles that can be attested that is that can be verified independently uh, and so there's a group in the church that is in charge of investigating those miracles and, and, and all of that, all of that's, So that's kind of one end of the process is that this is not just any old person, but this is this particular person that, that in Roman Catholic language, at least uh, has an extra measure of grace and, and then is able to intercede for the church or for us on uh,
1: before the throne of grace
0: is that kind of your yeah right understanding I
1: mean, right there there have to be certain miracles and, and associated with the person so in other words we're looking for a hero of the faith whereas st paul is like like you said is basically using the word in is a synonym for a Christian, right? Uh, any any person who is in Christ, right, is is sanctified, is right. a saint, right? And um, but but you know, we we wouldn't deny that there are certain people that are heroic in their faith, that are uh you know outstanding in the in the way they have you know the the works they have done and and perhaps even have performed miracles. I don't deny that reality. No the possibility Um, no 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 i don't i mean just kind of as a side note here there was a really terrific film made a few years ago called the third miracle i don't know if it's accurate or not but it's about a priest who has to investigate these sorts of things Hmm. and um and 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 of course at least according to that film they said that the, the the person has to have performed three miracles you know there have to be three miracles associated with the intercessions of that of that of that individual Hmm. and so this guy anyway this guy goes and basically 99 percent of the time he debunks them and so he's kind of fallen from faith himself but then there's this really kind of twist so it's a it's a terrific film i actually think it's yeah i think i highly recommend it it's hard to find but i highly recommend it it's called the third miracle um it's it's pretty pretty cool but um Yeah. So I think that's the process. There's, I mean, there is a process and, but what they're looking for is a hero of the faith, someone who is extraordinary in their works. And, you know, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to take anything away from that. Unless, I mean, I mean, obviously where we're going to differ is we're going to, we're going to say that, you know, these people are not any more righteous. They're not any more right with God than, you know, the, 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 Anonymous Christian who is is never known for their works, but they live their vocation, right? Um, As sinner saint.
0: All
1: right. Uh, um.
0: On September fourth, when when Mother Teresa was canonized, canonized, the president of our church body, Matthew Harrison, posted Article Twenty One of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and uh, I was just skimming over this, an article. 21 really does a nice job, I think, of listing kind of how do we look at the saints? What does this mean? And uh, and I would encourage our listeners to, uh, to take a look at this because it is worthwhile. Uh, it starts with uh, our confession approves honors to the saints and that there is a threefold honor. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically it's Thanksgiving, the strengthening of our faith and uh the honor of imitation I mean we get any in number of any number of places in the scriptures where Paul especially will say imitate me because I imitate Christ and that's mm-hmm. that kind of uh, that kind of picture so it is a good thing to honor and remember the saints who have gone before us that this is not a that this is not some sort of bad thing uh then it goes on and this and this really is an interesting part to say that uh that the angels pray for us, because mm-hmm. that's a part. That's a part of this in the Roman Catholic faith is that the saint will intercede for people. So, so you know, you'll hear about uh, a, a certain class or person or place can have a patron saint, right? So you have Saint Jude as the patron patron saint of police officers, uh, and and so that the thought being that this person is going to intercede before the throne of grace asking, uh, for those people. And so then, and this, and this is where we start to get into money waters, at least for me, Scott mm-hmm. is, so I am, a, uh, Susie sinner in the Roman Catholic church. And then I pray to, uh, St. Teresa, mother Teresa, and ask her to intercede before God on my behalf. Um, and, and so what I guess in the, in the Lutheran church, we would look at that and say, well, the scriptures say that the angels pray for us and and that we can see that certainly they prayed for the church when they were alive and that we don't have any reason to say that the saints don't pray now. I mean, there's no scriptural picture that says that they don't or can't. But um, but that doesn't mean that we pray to them along the way.
1: No, am, you know, am I
0: getting that right? Am I kind of?
1: Usually what my Catholic friends will say is, look, you can ask me to pray for you and I will pray for you. And, you know, these people are not dead. They're alive. They're alive right. in heaven. And uh, so you're just simply asking someone to pray for you, someone, you know, a, a beloved Christian to pray for you. But, you know, of course, the, the problem with that is there's no certainty that these people, you know, that, that Mother Teresa can hear my, my pleas for intercession. Yeah. If she was if she was walking on the earth. I could approach her hypothetically and say, please pray for me, and she might say a prayer for me, intercede for me, and that would be well and good. But I don't have any assurance that if I call out to the sky for Mother Teresa to intercede for me that she can or would uh, hear me. Um, and like you said, I think it's probable that the saints in heaven are praying for the church on earth. Is the, where, what's questionable is what, and you know, where there is no assurance, there can be no comfort that they actually hear the the pleas of the of of people today on on the earth.
0: Right. So you have this intercession issue, which is a which is a problem. Uh, but really, the greater the greater challenge, I think, or the greater problem, probably the the Lutheran. The Lutheran angst over this whole thing is the concept of propitiation is Mm -hmm. that uh, it's one thing to ask, uh, to ask the saints to pray for me, to intercede for me. It's another thing entirely to say that I receive the merits of this person because they had an extra measure of grace because uh, so now that now I can receive some benefit from them that is apart from or even addition to Christ. Mm -hmm. And there, and there, uh, a Lutheran is going to put the red flag down and say, Mm -hmm. there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And, and so the, the notion of mediation that uh, Christ alone paid the price for all of our sins. And, and so neither St. Teresa nor anyone else can do that. Uh, And so that's, I I think that's where for the Lutheran, all of this stuff just starts to get, I, I start to get antsy and and i don't want to go there and a part of it is uh, this i'm sure this will come as a great shock to you scott but i am much more inclined to uh to give my roman catholic friends the benefit of the doubt than i am my protestant friends because i think that lutherans have largely been protestantized for a very long time and so and 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 i will freely admit that that's uh, that's that's kind of my own problem or concern, but uh, but I can't go there when it comes to this notion of propitiation. So, so that's where uh, when I look at a figure like Mother Teresa, I want to look at what was the you know she she spent her life serving her neighbor, caring for the poor and those in need. She is a model of of faith and love uh, to to Christians the world over. That's all good. Uh, what I don't want to do is start going down the road of. Therefore, we can we pray to her or we or we want her to go before God and intercede on our behalf because I don't uh, I just don't see that scriptural picture.
1: No, and I think you I mean, you nail the the biggest problem of all is the idea of the merits of the saints somehow being attributed to me, you know, that I'm somehow getting some, you know, that their work is meritorious a for themselves Um, or, 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 you know, and, and that it could be super meritorious so that it overflows onto someone like myself because I, you know, pay a devotion to the saints or something. Um, now, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's certainly my understanding of contemporary Roman Catholic thinking on this and, and, you know, I don't think it's changed all that much officially, over the years, but at the same time, you know, like I said, I wouldn't take it. You know, we're not taking anything away from the good works that Mother Teresa and her and her nuns do have done and do. Uh, we think that's laudable, and even our Lutheran confessions, you know, that is laudable to, and it's and it's something to be imitated. the The great good deeds of those who've gone before, uh, but we can also be encouraged by their failures in a way because we can see the grace of God shine in those.
0: So. I, I want to extend an invitation a couple of invitations here first of all to our uh to our if we have any Roman Catholic listeners and we've and we have uh, misportrayed uh the Roman Catholic views on this I want to know please write me uh write us you can write us at uh feedback at the crux of the matter dot net um find us on Facebook or find us on Twitter wherever it is crux or crux of the matter uh and tell us where we've either misportrayed the Roman Catholic view or if there's a better way to say it or look at it. I would love to hear it, seriously. Um, the other the other invitation of the other question that I have, and this really is because I don't understand it, maybe you understand it and you can help me get it, Scott, is how does the Eastern Orthodox Church view the saints or the merits of the saints, intercession of the saints? Is it different than Rome? Is it more or less the same as Rome? I honestly don't know uh and i would love to get a uh i would love to
1: have a better picture of that
0: so if we have any orthodox yeah. listeners help a help a lutheran out here
1: yeah i would be mostly speculating uh, you know and, and my speculation would be that they would have similar views because some of these views are quite old i mean these are ancient you know the the ideas of of honoring the relics of the, of the martyrs is right. is a is a pretty old oh, tradition
0: absolutely second so, century for sure
1: yeah. So, so I think that I think that the Eastern Orthodox Church is probably going to have some of this uh, same approach, but probably not as developed. Yeah, that's my guess, too.
0: But uh, but I don't want to guess. I would prefer to actually know. So, yeah, well, that's our uh, that's our conversation on uh, on Mother Teresa. And uh, I'm sure that there's a lot more that could be said along the way. We haven't even gotten into liberation theology, but maybe we can uh, take that up another time, Scott. Is that all right with sure. you?
1: All yeah, right. absolutely.
0: If you are interested in any of the notes about some of these things that we talked about, you can find our show at the crux of the matter dot net. And the show notes for this episode will be at the crux of the matter dot net slash podcast slash sixty one. So you can find it there and I would invite you to do so and give us some feedback if you got it. So, my friend, anything bringing you joy right now that you'd like to share with the class?
1: Uh, not very much. Unfortunately. Yeah. You want me I, to go first? Uh, uh, no, I've got something. Okay. Um, uh, there's, um, there's a writer that I've uh, been following for a few years named Sherry Turkle. Okay. Um, a few years ago, she's, a, she's, a, oh, I kind of forget what her expertise is, but she, she taught at, at MIT. I think she might be at Harvard now, but she um, wrote a book a few years ago called Alone Together. Okay. Alone Together, which was really about uh, where she studied the uh, the effects that our technology, or especially our social media technology, is having on us and on our children and how it's creating more loneliness even as it is connecting us uh, together in a way. Hmm. Um, and so she just kind of, she just kind of examines that problem. Well, she's got a new book out that I just got. And so I've only read a little bit and can't comment very deeply, but it's called reclaiming conversation where uh, the premise of the book is that, you know, the, the remedy to whatever problem she di- has diagnosed in her previous books is, is simply face-to-face human conversation where people actually talk to each other and don't just text or don't just, you know, you know, use, use technology to communicate email and whatnot, but where they actually sit down and have conversations. And she would suggest that that's a skill that people have, are losing hmm. and that that children are not developing uh, very well. And, you know, she, she produces all sorts of sociological data to, to back this up her own research um but anyway I, I I loved her first book or I love the book Alone Together and I'm enjoying what I've read so far little though it is of reclaiming mm. conversation.
0: Cool, reclaiming conversation. We'll have that in the mm-hmm. notes. Yeah, I've not read it. Sounds like a good uh, uh a good topic. I uh, as our listeners probably Probably remember I'm on the board of regents at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, and I remember having a conversation with uh, the provost Jeff Cloa uh, last month at our meeting, and I, and I don't even remember how it came up, Scott, but he just he mentioned almost as an aside that a few years ago they set a policy at the seminary for the faculty, you know, faculty staff that that basically you could not have any substantive conversation or dialogue take place by, by email so essentially email was used for scheduling meetings or attaching a document uh-huh. that kind of thing but that you uh-huh. couldn't that you couldn't have a substantive conversation and and i'm going to guess that some of that at least is is some of that thought was behind what's going on in this same book and i love oh, I, it i yeah. think that's a fantastic right. idea
1: I do, do too. I mean, I have kind of a mixed response, you know, because on the one hand, it is a very old custom for people to carry on conversations via letters. Yes. Right. Okay, that has been around for as long as there has been writing and literacy and and letters and letters. Yes. People have corresponded and carried on quite intimate conversations quite successfully um, via letters. So email because the problem, you know, some of the problems with email versus writing a physical paper letter is the timing element. You know, I can jot off an email and you'll have it within six seconds. Whereas if I'm going to write a letter, it's going to take me longer. It's going to require more thought. I have to go through more steps to get it to you. Right. And 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 therefore it might, you know, might not have the same emotional explosiveness that that email can have because we you and I, we could have sent 100 emails back and forth to each other in a weekend. And and, and that may be the problem with that. And, right. and so it's, an, it's a very interesting policy. Yeah, I, think that's yeah, I, I
0: appreciate it very much. I'll have to, I'll have to ask him if that if that's a written policy or if that's sort of a
1: Common Unspoken,
0: common understanding that they do. I am not. I don't know honestly, but i, I think that's an interesting one. Uh, mm-hmm. My joy bringer this week, and I have a number of them, but i am gonna I am gonna stick to one, and that one is a book called "The Word Remains." This is a uh, this is a translation of a work that was written by Wilhelm Lea. We've talked about Leah before. I think I did his book, The Pastor, as a joy bringer uh, some months ago. Uh, but this is a little, a little book that was put together, compiled in 2008. So, you know, whatever, 130 years after, after Leah died. But it was compiled in 2008, and it's a combination of Leah's uh, thoughts on the church year on doctrinal topics and then on, I'll, I'll say, kind of common pastoral issues. So it's a short book, hundred and twenty-five pages, something like that. Not super long. um So he'll have uh, a few paragraphs on Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and kind of go through things. And then we'll have uh these little things. They're usually in one or two or three paragraph thing. It's it's very devotional or meditative in nature. Um, I got to uh, I got to get a review copy of it and so posted a review of it on my blog the lutheran logomaniac so i'll i'll put a link to that to that review in the show notes as well but it is just a fantastic book it drips with gospel uh and, and honestly a part of a, a, the thing that i i almost enjoyed the 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 introductory material almost as much as i did the book itself there's this essay that was written at the beginning uh, basically on how to read it, and uh, written by uh, Manfred Seitz, uh, who I believe is a I think is a pastor in Germany right now. but this let me read this one paragraph because it it's just it's so poignant and I think it it catches a lot of the ideas that we talk about here. This is from the uh, from the introduction. Uh, there are two kinds of reading. Lingering reading and consuming reading. People of the ancient and medieval world, where there were no or very few books, read slowly, repeating, pondering, lingering over what they read. Then, above all, through the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg, came reading for the purpose of consumption in which lines and sentences were quickly skimmed. This is the way we read. We mostly read books, newspapers, journals, and documents. The former, the careful and contemplative reading, which satisfies itself in just a few pages per day, is what we ought to take up again, apply, and practice. This is how we get back to Wilhelm Lea, and this is how his writings should be read. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, I
1: love it. Oh, man. It it applies to so many types of texts, and, and certainly Lea.
0: Yeah. So so this book uh, just captures this. No- it's a book that you want to linger on. You can mm-hmm. read it. Nice. And I mean, and you can probably read the whole thing in a couple hours. It, it's not a long book, but it is so packed with with wisdom where every word is carefully crafted. Uh, I'd like to I, I would also highlight that I believe that the the translation work at least from the English side is just spectacular it's 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 carefully written uh, the translation work uh, reminds me a lot of those Hareburger uh, volumes on Genesis that Cph published a few years ago I think uh, I think the translator was at least One of the translators is the same because because this book is an absolute gem. I I picked it up, I think, on Monday or no, it was last Friday and I couldn't put it down. I I read the whole thing straight through.
1: Well, that's what I I was going to ask is if you know who the translator was. Uh, I think that um,
0: Matthew Carver was involved in the (laughs) translating. Okay. But I also think that um, Reverend Michael Fries and his wife, Janet, also were involved in the translating. I'm, I'm not looking at the book right in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it was a combination. Both um, both Pastor Fries and his wife, Janet, are quite fluent in German. So, so yeah, it's just a fantastic little book. It's available from manual Press, and we'll have a link in the show notes. I think it's, I want to say $12.99. I'm not certain on the price. It'll be in the show notes. But great nice. book. Nice. I highly recommend it. Great. I look forward to getting it. Awesome. Anything else for our dear listeners, my friend? Nothing. Nothing. All right. No. And with that nothing, we thank you very much and we will see you next time.